we are in the middle of a Christmas series, which makes total sense, right? Because we're heading towards Christmas, everybody knows that. And we're looking at the Gospel of Luke as we lead up to Jesus Christ being born and we will take that passage on Christmas Day itself. I want to take us into the shoes of a first century Jew before we get to our passage today. I want to want you to kind of put your imaginary caps on and pretend like you are around in the first century and you are a Jew. It's been thousands of years since God has made his covenant with the patriarch Abraham and you certainly weren't around by then. You don't know anyone who was around then. Um, You obviously have the Old Testament scriptures that you look to and read if you have the ability to or you listen in the synagogue as the Jewish people tell you about Abraham and the promise that God made to him, that he would make him a great nation and that out of this nation, one would come who would bless the nations. And you hold on to that promise tightly, as do all those who are your common folk. But that's thousands of years ago, right? You look forward to the one that you read about in Genesis who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman, Eve, way back in the garden. And he would crush the great arch enemy of God, Satan himself. But again, you've waited. And there's been times that you've read where it looked like it might come, but it hasn't. And you read of... King David and his triumphs for the nation as he conquered the enemies of the land and started to build what looked like a wonderful kingdom. And there was a promise made to David that there would be one who would come from him, who would be of his line, who would sit on his throne and reign forever. And he would make all of those things happen that you so looked forward to. And yet, where is it? Because after that point, everything starts to go downhill, right? You have the nation no longer being singular, but plural. They split, right, into north and south because they can't get along. And not long after that, they both go into captivity, right? The north is taken by Assyria into captivity and the, the south, 150 or so years later, by Babylon. And not only are you not in the land anymore... You're dragged off into a foreign land and you are under the rule of a foreign nation. That's not how it was meant to go, surely. And eventually, as time goes on, you do get to come back to the land, but you never come back to the land as your own national government, right? You are always under the power of a foreign rule whether it be Persia, whether it be the Greeks, and now as we get to the first century, it's Rome. And they control you, right? They're happy for you to go and do some of your religious activities, but really they are the boss and they control you and how you operate. They tax you heavily. And even within your own people, you have the religious elite who burden you down with all these rules that they have come up with in the oral tradition that you have to abide by or you are not seen to be righteous or accepted by God. This, this is the first century 
Jew's life. And it's hard. And you want all those things to be true in the Old Testament, from the garden to the exodus to the covenants to King David and the prophets and the promises and all those things that you read and you look forward to, and yet you, you live in a time where none of it seems to be going on. And you wonder, is this ever going to happen? Will any of these promises ever be fulfilled? I mean, if you're in the first century, you haven't even heard from a prophet in 400 years. No one even on behalf of God has come to speak to the nation. It's quiet. And you wonder, what on earth are you doing, God? Where are you? Is this true? Is, is all this stuff that I've been told as a, as a kid growing up, is it true? Is it really going to happen? Is it ever going to happen? My grandparents waited for it, they didn't see it. Their parents waited for it, they didn't see it. And their parents as well. God, where are you? What are you doing? Can you imagine being a Jew, asking some of those questions as you go through life under the power of Rome? Some of that can be hard to imagine because we live in such a different culture and society than having someone oppress us from above. But I think you can imagine that. I think you can understand some of those questions because you have thought some of those questions too. Very different circumstances, but you've asked those questions. You have asked, as you go through suffering that you didn't want to, what are you doing, God? I didn't think this was how it would go. You've prayed prayers that didn't get answered. And you've asked the Lord, why, why didn't you answer that? You've agonized over a, lost, uh, over a loved one that isn't saved yet, wondering, God, why haven't you saved them? You've battled an addiction that you thought you would have beaten by now, but it's still got power over you. And you fall into that on a regular basis and you wonder, God, why haven't you given me the strength and the ability to overcome that? Where are you? What are you doing? You've wrestled at, at your lowest point, maybe. You have wrestled with the question, is any of this even real? I mean, just be honest with yourself. You don't have to tell anybody... You, you have had moments where you have asked the question, God, are you even real? Is all this that I believe and that I read and that I hear, is it true? Is it really true? You've asked that question. I've asked that question. Are you really who you say you are? Is it all true? Well, today I want to look at the words of a first century Jewish teenage girl who lived during these first century times and I want to show us what she has to say about a God who broke through the silence. And she is the one who is going to carry the Messiah who they have all been waiting for. 
And we pick up the story after Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, has come to announce this to Mary, that she will bear the one that everybody, including herself, has been waiting for. And when Gabriel is telling her this and saying, you're going to bear the Son of God, no pressure, uh, one of the ways that he proved this or a sign that he gave to Mary was that, hey, if you don't believe me or you need extra confirmation, just so you know, your relative, Elizabeth, is already six months pregnant, right? And if you remember back to week one, Elizabeth was old, right? Past kind of childbearing age. And after she did get pregnant, she went away into isolation. So nobody knows that, first of all, Elizabeth can get pregnant still and that she is pregnant because she's off by herself, isolated. And so what do you think Mary is going to do after the angel has come to her and given her this announcement about bearing the Messiah? Straight to Elizabeth, right? And she goes to Elizabeth and she knocks on the door and she greets Elizabeth. And what does she see? A six-month baby bump on Elizabeth and she realizes everything the angel said to me is true it's gonna happen it's gonna happen if that's true then I do bear the Messiah and she after that point she writes a song right it's it's a poetical kind of form it's like a psalm Um, and it's called Mary's song It's got another name, which we'll get to in a sec. And basically, this is a poetic form of God's character through the Old Testament up until this point. And the beauty of poetry is, and some of you like poetry, some of you can't stand poetry. The beauty of poetry is that it says a lot of things in a very short amount of space, Right? T.S. Eliot, who you might have heard of him, he's one of the, the greatest 20th century poets and he won the uh, 48 Nobel Prize in literature. Right, Famous guy, knows what he's talking about. This is what he says about poetry. Right, What poetry is to language is the supreme attempt to purify, concentrate and distill language to an almost remorseless power which speaks to us. Right? That's, what, that's what poetry is. It's like reducing down a, a broth on the stove so that you have the most intense, concentrated flavor in, such a, in a short amount of liquid. That's what poetry is. And so in this song, it is, it's not long, but it is full of theology. It is dripping with meaning and understanding. And uh, we, we won't even be able to do it justice today but we'll do our best she's going to take the whole character of god that's been revealed in the old testament and and concentrate it and distill it down to 10 small verses right and in this section you're going to in in this song you're going to see three sections the first one you're going to see is there's a personal praise element and then you're going to see in the second section a universal praise and then the third section you're going to see a national praise and within these three sections there is no less than 18 old testament references by mary okay mary knew her old testament and within these i'm going to point out eight characteristics of god eight attributes of god of who he is and who mary 
proclaims in her praise that God is. So, let's kick off. We're in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. The soul is the deepest place that encapsulates the whole person. It's the grouping of of emotions and thoughts and desires and and will. It's it's the epicenter of the person and, and, and who we are. It's hard to fully grasp the soul, but most of us have an idea of what it is. It's, it's, it's the deepest part of us. And Mary says, that's the part that glorifies the Lord. The Greek word there for glorify is, uh, is megaluno, right? And if you translated uh, megaluno into Latin, you would get the word magnificat, and it means to magnify. And so this song is often called the Magnificat. Because Mary, and and make sure you hear this, this is important because some people get this around the wrong way. Mary is going to magnify the Lord. That's what this is. Mary is magnifying the Lord. Some people can see this as Mary being magnified. What's Mary? Mary is actually magnifying the Lord. And as you read through, she will continually magnify the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It's a, there's a qualifier there at the end of the second line. It's, it's my Savior. You see, God was pictured as the Savior. And this is common in the Psalm and the, and the prophets. That the faithful Old, Testaments, uh, Old Testament saints knew that they were sinners. Something was very broken around them. And the only hope that they had was that God would save them that God would come through for them, that He would fix it. And Mary is no different. She lifts up the Lord God as as she praises His saving work on behalf of her. Notice the personal element to this praise. Three times she uses the first person uh, pronoun, my. It's my soul, my spirit, my saviour. This is not an abstract, removed deity who is distant, but rather this is a personal, close, real God that Mary speaks of. It's not just the Savior. It's not just a Savior. It's my Savior. Mary continues on and she gives two bases for the, two points for the, uh, the, the basis of her praise of God. These are two things that Mary specifically is praising God for. The first one is in verse 48. He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This brings us uh, to the first attribute of God this morning, and that is that we see the care of God. The care of God. He saved her and he's mindful of her. You don't save something you don't care about. You don't keep something that isn't important to you or precious to you. Yet she says, God is my salvation and God is mindful of her. The word literally means that he looks upon her. He sees her. He knows her. He cares about her. And Mary glorifies God because of those things. 
she has, he has looked upon Mary and he has seen a humble servant. Humble servant. Because essentially, Mary's a nobody. Right? Young, teenage, unmarried girl. No real status in society at that point. No political ambitions. Probably didn't receive much of an education. Hard to know that for sure. Overlooked by almost everyone. You wouldn't think much of Mary if you walked past her on the street. Yet God saw Mary. And, she, and He saw something very different. He saw a humble servant who was willing to take the lowest place, if necessary. See, God favours the humble. This is clear in the Old Testament. It's a theme that runs through this whole song, and you'll see it pop up line after line, that God favours the humble. This is the way that God operates. It's clear in the Psalms and the Proverbs that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Right? And, and Mary praises God, her Saviour, because He has looked upon her low social status and yet in love chose that she would bear the Messiah. If you're a proud person, I, I have nothing to offer you this morning. Because the way that God has set up His economy of salvation is that you must humble yourself by recognizing that there is a God and it's not you. And so the proud person who can't do that will never receive salvation from God. C.S. Lewis said that the proud people are so busy looking down on others that they're, they're never able to look up. Right? And it's no coincidence that all over the Scriptures, God uses nobodies to achieve His mission. He just picks the lowly, right? And bestows upon them this great task and, and lifts them up to this, these, these places of prominence that they, they didn't deserve and no one would have thought so. I mean, you look back at the greatest king that Israel ever had and it was a shepherd boy overlooked by all these other brothers, thought to be too young, too weak, too unimportant, right? And God says, that's my guy. That's the one. I'm going to make him king. She goes on, from now, all, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Mary says... People who know what God has done in me are going to call me blessed. She recognizes that God has given her the special privilege of having her bear the Messiah. And future generations will too perceive her fortune in receiving this special role. She is an example of one who has been graced by God. That's the first reason Mary's giving praise. The second reason in verse, 40, verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Here we see our second attribute of God that Mary recognizes. It is the might of God. And yes, you guessed it straight from the Old Testament. This, this title, the Mighty One, it refers to the warrior God 
that fights on behalf of his people and delivers them from his enemies. Think David and Goliath, right? A small child against a large, fully grown, oversized man. What chance did he stand? All the chance in the world if the might of God is on display that day, of which it was. Section 1, Mary's personal praise comes to an end. We're moving on to the second section, the universal praise. You won't find first-person uh, first pronouns here, but you will find the third attribute that Mary describes, and that is, holy is His name. He is other. He's separate. He's distinct. He's different. Not in a way that He doesn't want to be near His people. He created a, a, a way to be near his people that he would go with his people as they would travel through the the desert in the portable temple the tabernacle he god's presence would be with them in the holy of holies he wanted to dwell and be close to his people and yet their sinfulness kept a barrier between the jews and their god of which they would bring sacrifices regularly that their sins might be forgiven on a temporary basis he is holy in his goodness and he is the mighty one who fights for his people verse 50 mary continues his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation this is a direct quote out of psalm 103 a psalm praising the character of god this is the fourth attribute that Mary mentions. It is the mercy of God. And His mercy is changeless and timeless. And it keeps going from generation to generation. That's what it means. It just keeps going. The mercy of God. It's never ending. Here's verse 51. Performed mighty deeds with His arm. We have uh, there an anthropomorphism of God, it is called, which is a fancy theological term which refers to when God is described in human characteristics or with human um, anatomy, even though we know that God is spirit. In this case, it is the, the arm of God performing deeds. And this is, again, common in the Old Testament, where you read about the arm of God doing mighty things. And effectively, what is it, it is attesting to that God involved himself into an action. He willed it and performed it. What's the attribute here? This is the sovereignty of God. And it's our fifth attribute. Who wills and actions all things according to his great purpose. And what he decides cannot be stopped. She continues on, He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. There's the proud. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Here we have the sixth, sixth attribute. It is the justice of God. He scatters those who are proud in their hearts. Those who feel they have no need for Him, God won't force them into His presence if they do not want to be there. Those who want to be independent of God, he will allow that to take place. And another way that he is just is verse 52. He brings down rulers from their thrones. 
Now, Mary lived under a merciless government, which was Rome, right? They, at the time, there was this thing called the Pax Romana, which is basically the peace of Rome. And there was this declaration of how Rome was at peace. But really, the way that they, they, uh, they got peace was to crush anything or anyone that might bring up, uh, stir, stir up rebellion, including the Son of God, Jesus, right? That's, that's why he ends up, one of the reasons the Jews can get him killed. But when Mary's writing this, Rome is very much in charge and running the show. And it doesn't look like verse 52 is really going on. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. That hasn't happened, as Mary writes this. And yet it's written in the past tense. Like it already took place. How does Mary say that? Now stick with me here. I'm going to nerd out on you with some Greek, which is important. I know some of you will be bored, have a nap. I'll wake you up in a couple of minutes. In Greek, there is what's called the aorist tense. It is basically, at its most basic form, the past tense in Greek, right? It looks at an action that has been... Uh, has taken place in the past. Within the aorist tense, there is various categories, right? And one of those is called the proleptic aorist tense. And it describes an event that is not yet past, but as though it has already happened. And it is used as an assurance that even though this has not happened yet, you can be confident that it will. In fact, I'll describe it as if it's already been done. That's the proleptic aorist that Mary uses here. You want a good example of this? Romans 8.30. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. Have we been glorified yet? We're still waiting. But Paul wants you to know it is so certain. I will describe it in the past tense like it's already happened. It is locked in. That's how real this is. And you know what's amazing? Is that what happened after Christ ascended is you had 12 guys with little to no education, political influence, wealth or power who were under a totalitarian government who, first, who faced persecution from Rome and from the Jews and they suffered greatly and you would have thought, A, no one's joining that and B, that thing's going to be over as soon as those leaders die out. And yet, let me read you a quote from uh, Dr. John Hanna in his book on church history. This is towards the end of the Roman Empire as it has fallen in the West. Who could ever imagine a persecuted sect called the Way, largely drawn from the poor, illiterate and enslaved classes, would be capable of sustaining a movement that eventually would be embraced by kings and emperors. In the beginning of the era, it was a small sect. At the end of the era, it was the religion of the civilized world. 
In the beginning, the Roman Empire was unified under a Caesar. At the end, it no longer existed in the West, yet Christianity continued to flourish. In the beginning, the Romans killed their king. At the end, kings embraced him as their resurrected and living Lord. What happened? God did exactly what Mary said he would do. He scattered those who were proud and he brought down rulers from their thrones. And once again, he used the humble to carry out his mission. A bunch of nobodies. The seventh thing we see is the grace of God. As we continue on in the second half of verse 52, it says, But he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. God was the provider in the Old Testament. When the Israelites wandered through the desert, God went before them. Pillar of fire at night, pillar of cloud during the day. He provided water and food for their survival and made sure their clothes did not wear out. It was by God's grace that their bellies were full at the end of the day. This is straight out of Psalm 107. And it speaks of God's grace towards those who truly desire it. Those who have a hunger for the Lord, He will fill. She goes on, verse 54, He has helped His servant Israel. This is the, the national praise in the third section. He has helped His servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as He promised our ancestors. Lastly, Mary talks about the faithfulness of God. Our eighth and final attribute that God says, what God says He will do, He will do. It may take a long time to fulfill, but when God says He's going to do something, when He promises something, He does it. Mary connects the coming of the Messiah with the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham all those thousands of years ago that everybody had been waiting for. Not just Abraham, the Jewish ancestors all along the way, all of them waiting, hoping for this Messiah to come, promises that they held on to, that they didn't see come to fulfillment. Mary says, it is here. God has been faithful. From Eve and the, the one who would crush the head of the serpent through Abraham to, the, to Judah who the, he said the scepter of rule would not depart until the one who would rule would come to the son of David and the warrior who the prophets spoke of. Finally, he's here. There is this, this scene in um, the, one of the Star Wars movies, the, the newer ones, The Force Awakens, right? And it's, it's set after the last, the, the original series, you know, um, the really old ones. And there's a, a fair distance of time that has taken place. But Luke Skywalker's still alive, looking old. Uh, Han Solo's still alive, looking dapper, um, still hot. And uh, all the old ladies still, you know, get hot flushes when they see him. Um, shout out to my mum back there. 
<clears throat> you'll watch anything with Harrison Ford, the old ladies, I love him. And um, anyway, he's old, right? He's old. You know he's old. He has seen a lot. All of the, the war that originally went on has, has finished. It has moved on. The, the, the Jedis have died out. The kind of, that story that took place in those original movies back in the 70s and, and early 80s, I think it was, has kind of become almost mythic or folklore. And they're on the, they're on the uh, whatever his ship's called, Who's a nerd out there can tell me who Han Solo's ship is? Millennium Falcon. Uh, they're there and there's these two young upstart kind of warriors who are trying to find their way and figure out where do they sit in this good and evil battle and how do they fight. Um, and uh, Finn, I think his name is, and he's kind of defected from the bad side because he's got a conscience. And, and Ray. And they're there and they're talking about this idea of the Force and Jedis and kind of this, this thing that used to be that they don't even know if it's real or if it's true or, like, is it just folklore? And Han Solo, who's sitting there listening, turns to them, who's, who's seen it all, right? And if you remember, right back in the originals, he was a skeptic of the whole Force Jedi thing and... He was kind of like, this is, all, this is all a joke, right? It's like, I've got a pistol and I shoot people. And he looks at these two and he just says, you know what? It's all true. I've seen it. The Jedi, the Force, it's all true. And it's just this moment of like, whoa. Because you've got somebody who was around back when it all went down who can say, I've seen it, I was there, it's all true. And here's Mary, who's waited and waited and heard of and longed for these promises for thousands of years. And she's saying, it's all true. It's all true. The promises to Abraham to the Jewish ancestors, it's all true because I bear the one we've been waiting for. And God is faithful because he's doing what he said he would do. And all of these promises and all of these attributes of God that we have read of this morning that look back at what He has done in the Old Testament, they aren't just in the past tense. They aren't just what God has done. They are what God is doing. And this is why Mary writes this, because she's saying, look what God has done in the Old Testament, and it's all coming to fruition and fulfillment in this one person that I bear. It's not just about what God has done. It's about what God is doing. And it's about what God will continue to do because that is what character does. Character always acts. You cannot stop character from acting, right? It just flows out of you. If you are a loving person and you have a character of love, you love people. You can't help it. You just do it, right? And, and Mary is saying, here's the character of God. We've seen it in the past. Here it is right now. It's happening all over again, why should I be surprised? 
Because we don't just get an arm of God in a figurative sense from this point on, where we have to try and make some sort of anthropological connection between God and a human body, right? We get God in a physical body down on earth, amongst us in the dust, telling us, showing us the character of God. You see, in Jesus Christ, all of those attributes that we just went through can be seen. Let me run through them really quickly. The care of Jesus, the one who saw the world and said, I will come and save them from their sins. He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He was mindful of you because he cared and cares for you. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Then we have the might of Jesus who showed he had unrivaled power over wind, over waves, over death, over disease. There was nothing that could come close to his power, his might. Nothing could stop his mission. We have the holiness of Jesus who was sinless, pure in his motivations, actions and desires, righteous in every way, so different, so other. Peter, uh, in 1 Peter, calls him the lamb without defect. We have the mercy of Jesus who looks at the leper, the prodigal son, the tormented uh, demon-possessed man and he feels compassion towards him and he goes towards them and he offers the broken restoration. The sovereignty of Jesus. In John 10, 18, Jesus says about going to the cross, no one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord, talking about his life. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it back up. Everything happened according to the sovereign plan of God through Jesus Christ. The justice of Jesus who stands and he rebukes the religious authorities who oppress the people by burdening them down with the religious rules and traditions that God had not called them to obey. Then one day, everyone will stand before Jesus... And these books will be opened and people will be judged accordingly to what they have done. And there will be justice. And people will receive what is just. And that is a really scary thought. And at the end of the day, there will be one who will rule and who will reign. And he will be known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And he will be just. And then we have the grace of Jesus who takes his righteousness and he gives it to those who are unrighteous, like you and me, ones who don't deserve it, who didn't earn it, who can't earn it, and he gives it to us. And he takes our place and he goes to the cross and takes the penalty of sin upon himself and makes forgiveness possible. And so anyone who's willing to humble themselves and recognize this and their their predicament can have the grace of Jesus and His righteousness bestowed upon them so that when that day comes of judgment, they are not going to be judged according to what they have done, for they will be falling short, but they will be judged according to what Christ has done and His goodness and His righteousness. And so if you're worried about that last day when those books are open, there is a way out that has been made for you, possible by the the grace of Jesus Christ in what He did on the cross.
There is salvation for those who are hungry, who want to be filled with good things. It's more than just the physical that we looked at in the Old Testament of food and water. It's spiritual. There's a deep soul spot there for God in your life that only Jesus can fulfill. It's not just physical. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. And it is only possible to find that rest in your soul, in God, through Jesus Christ. You will not find it anywhere else. You have not been created to find it anywhere else, to the extent that you can find it in Christ. That is the grace of God made real through Jesus Christ for you. And lastly, the faithfulness of Jesus. God had it in mind that when He created the world, He would, he, he would promise to rescue us from the mess that we got ourselves into at the beginning. He would not leave us in our sin and our mess. And the, the faithfulness of God in Jesus Christ means we can be assured of Jesus' promises to us. That if they're ones that are still to come that have not been fulfilled, that He will do it. What Jesus said He will do. I don't know what questions you have right now. I don't know what silence you might be experiencing in your life. I don't necessarily know the suffering that you're walking through. I don't know the doubt that you might be wrestling with. I don't know the valley that you feel like you're walking through. But I know that those things take place. And I want you to know that you are not the first to experience, experience those things. There are many who have gone before who have battled similar things. And they, like us, have looked to the character of God found in Jesus Christ, who revealed Himself, and clung tightly to the promises and the reality of salvation that was purchased for them. Mary is a witness to that this morning, that there was a young Jewish teenage girl waiting, wondering, will the Saviour ever come? We don't have to wonder that anymore. He has come. You're in the middle of a story. And we're still waiting, but we're not waiting like Mary and the first century Jew was waiting. For the Saviour has appeared. And Christmas is the time that we remember that and celebrate that. And yet we still wait until Christ returns again and all of the things that He promised will be fulfilled in its completion. And until that time, He is slowly but surely building His kingdom, restoring those who are broken.
So what do we do while we wait? We hold tightly to the God's character in what has been revealed and shown in Jesus and we cling to his promises that he has made to us. For we know that God always is faithful to his word and Jesus is the living proof. Our Father, we can't even fully comprehend who you are. You are so holy and other that it's beyond our full comprehension and yet you have made a way that we, we can grasp some of it and it has been made all the clearer through Jesus Christ. And so I pray this morning that you would help us to see the Saviour in a fresh new way that we'd be reminded of his love, his care, his sovereignty, his justice, his mercy, his grace, and his faithfulness. As we remember what he has done for us, that he looked upon the lowly, the nobodies, who have nothing to offer, and saw that we, by the power of the Spirit, could be lifted up by the work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for him this morning. As we reflect on him, help us to connect with you and then may we sing with joyful hearts this next song for what you have done. In Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen. Amen.